Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Hey, welcome to Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we have not uh, done one of these for a while, so we're excited to get back on board here. And we're, we're going to talk about a couple of really interesting women uh, today. Grace Stone Coates was uh, sort of a mysterious um, and eventually kind of a legendary writer from the early... 20th century and we're going to talk about her book called black cherries and the other writer we're going to look at is a contemporary writer caroline patterson from missoula montana and the collection we're looking at of her short stories is ballet at the moose lodge yes and you know both of these women are just really powerful writers i'm uh i was you know i had carolyn's book for years and just never bothered to crack it open but when i did i was just like wow why didn't i read this sooner <laughs> it was so um, good uh rick newby gave me a copy you know the probably the day it came out and i remember reading at least halfway through it and thinking wow this stuff is awesome mm-hmm um, it is, it's a long collection. I'm surprised that, you know, she didn't make two books out of it. It easily could be two short story collections. Yeah. There's a lot of stories in here. Um, and it's also interesting that she, uh, um, a lot of them are based in Montana and, and some of those are clearly autobiographical, but she also spent a lot of time in Alaska apparently, right? Yeah. And yeah, so if I had to summarize it, I'd say um, definitely Montana-centric, but it's the broader West. There's a couple in Idaho also. Oh, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And we need to mention that um, Carolyn just recently found out that she's won a prize called the Big Moose Prize, which is kind of funny with her moose theme in her story. Ballet at the Moose too. Lodge, right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome, and they will publish her novel. You just won a, an award. Tell us about it. Yeah. Well, um, I was driving down from uh, Pole Bridge, and I got a text from my agent who said she had entered my novel into this contest from Black Lawrence Press. It's called the Big Moose Prize. <laughs> Is it really? Uh, yes. What a coincidence. <laughs> and uh, I know I, the moose seems to be my totem animal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah. But, um, but uh, and, uh, and she said you won it. 
So, um, so did you I, even know that she'd entered it? You know, I, I think she mentioned it to me, but I kind of had forgotten about it. Mm. But they're going to publish it um, next year. So that's I'm awesome. Really, really excited about it. What's the press again? It's Black Lawrence Press. It's out of upstate New York. Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really thrilled. That uh, is very exciting. Congratulations. I know you were discouraged about not being able to find a publisher for that. So that's, that's great. Thank you. It was a, I've worked on it. It's been a long slog. I've worked on it for probably 12 years and it's gone through a lot of different um, incarnations and, but I felt like this was a, um, the, you know, last version I was going to do. And mm. so that was what's this? Give us a synopsis of it. Well, it's called the Stone Sister, and it's a it's a novel in three uh, voices. It's a story about um, a, a sister that was uh, basically disappeared into into an institution by hmm. a family. So the story is from the point of view of a nurse, hmm. uh, father, and then a sister who is searching for this lost sister. Um, so that it takes place between the um, 1950s through the 1988. So it the chapters alternate um, between the 50s and the, and then later in the um, late 70s and 80s. Mm, um, wow! So it's kind of a it's partly a quest and um, and then the story of this missing sister. So, so Grace Stone Coates is a pretty fascinating uh, individual. She was um, named in the top 100 of um, short stories published in the 20th century by this collection that John Updike put out. Right. Is that right. Um, and it's the it's the Wild Plum story, not Wild Plums. Uh, yeah, Wild Plums. Yeah. Um, which so, is in Black Cherries. Right. So she was highly regarded, not just in Montana, but nationally, back when she was publishing. Um, but her publishing career was really short. Uh, for someone who lived to be 95 years old, she didn't publish for very long. And there's uh, been a... Basically, you know, she started late, too. She was in her 30s when she started publishing in the 1920, 21. Mm -hmm. um, Black Cherries came out in 1931, but by 1938, she pretty much had stopped writing or publishing. Yeah. She was also the um, co-editor of Frontier, which is a kind of obscure literary magazine that, that came out in the, in the 20s and 30s, I want to say. And it was published out of Missoula, right? Correct. Um, and the editor was, or the main editor was H.G. Merriam, who was an English professor over there. Um, and they published, you know, some pretty big names, including uh, William Soroyan. Okay. And Greystone Coates was instrumental in starting his career. So do you, was, um, what was the guy's name again? H.G. Merriam, M-E-R-R-I-A-M. So was he sort of a mentor to her, do you think? You know, I don't know if I would say that. Maybe. I think more it was uh, they were uh, 
contemporaries. They okay. were colleagues. Right. That's interesting that I would, I would put that, uh, probably because he's a man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, you know, nobody knows who. There's my sexism coming through. <laughs> nobody knows who H.G. Merriam is, but a lot That's of people true. still remember her. That is very true, yeah. So one of the things that we were sort of speculating about um, as far as why she uh, stopped publishing or what happened with her was that it sounded like she was kind of a, a prickly personality, maybe. Um, and you, you mentioned uh, a book that she and Miriam put out about that was a, like criticism of several books from the West. Um, it's actually a pretty neat book. It's kind of obscure. It's, I think, a hard-to-find book, but it's called Northwest Books. Um, and it is just... Uh, it came out in 1942, so she was still writing at least these reviews then. Right. Uh, but published by Binfords and Mort in Portland, it's called A Report of the Committee on Books of the Inland Empire, Council of Teachers of English. Huh. Okay. And it's a collection of reviews of over 1,100 books. Mm. Wow. Uh, you know, so we- they... All Western books. It's a great Jeez. resource. Yeah. So so talk about the... Um... You know, you you're an expert on butte writers because of your book Literary Butte. Talk about the uh, what she had to say about your one of your favorites from that book. Um, yeah. So when I was doing research for that book, I that's how I acquired this Northwest Books mm-hmm. set of reviews, and she wrote about Burton Braley, who I I thought was one of the best writers on butte. He I thought really captured it in its heyday. And Burton Braley was a pretty famous writer. He was uh, probably the... Who's the famous poet? Billy... Billy uh, Collins? Yeah, he was sort of the Billy Collins of his day. Okay. And he says... Or, I'm sorry, she says about Burton Braley's novel, The Sheriff of Silverbow. I'll just read you this review. Recommend. No. Yeah. <laughs> Comment. The book is attributed to Braley. The evidence is clear on that point, but one can scarcely believe it upon perusal. I believe it is the most amateurish novel, the poorest on all counts, that I have ever seen. It is simply another of the long list of sins committed against Butte, Montana in print. The naivete... Naivete is misspelled. Mm. Stupidity and lack of taste it demands of its readers are without limit. Wow. There's no generous criticism honestly possible. And to be honest, a lot of her reviews are, you know, very... It's She seemed pretty bitter and... Mm. Um, I don't know. Well, you know, you can speculate, and it, it seems like if she was... If she had written all that she was ever going to write herself ten years before that, um, you got to wonder if she her uh, inability to produce anything herself was starting to wear on her and she just became sort of, like you said, bitter. Well, and the... Hypercritical. The Lee Rostad biography, uh, Greystone Coates, Her Life and Letters, um, which we also talked about, um, you know, in that book, it seems pretty clear that she had written a second novel. Oh, really? that Knopf wouldn't publish. 
Ah. And that's kind of when she quit writing. Oh, wow. So yeah. I don't know if she gave up or, you know, Rostad speculates in the introduction to that book that she just, you know, she'd said everything or written everything that she felt compelled to write. And she compares her to F. Scott Fitzgerald, who also, you know, mm. at the end, he just had written everything that he right. had experienced so, and so that was over. So that second novel never saw the light of day? So yeah, I don't know if that if that manuscript is in the historical society or somebody's working on it now or what. That would be really interesting to find out whether that maybe maybe it was just bad, you know. <laughs> Sometimes that well, happens too. I mean, that's possible too, but I don't know. Maybe in my old age or just my jaded career as an English professor, I think. Uh, you know, bad novels are worth publishing too. Sometimes, yeah, for other when, reasons. When it's especially when it's a writer that's of her stature and her. So I, I just wanted to read the beginning of Wild Plums because one. So one of the things I loved about both Carolyn and Grace, um, their writing, is that they they just take you right into the story. Um, I mean, they're really good at at bringing you into the and there's always um especially with these stories uh, from grace's black cherries there's always like uh she's really good at introducing you to the scene with a sense of like wait what's going on so here's, here's the opening i knew about wild plums twice before i tasted any the first time was when the Sunday school women were going plumbing. Father hunched his shoulders and laughed without making any sound. He said wild plums were small and inferior and told us and told us of fruits he had eaten in Italy. Mother and father were surprised that Mrs. Guare and the school teacher would go with Mrs. Slump to gather plums. I knew it was not nice to go plumbing, but I didn't know why. I wanted to go once so I would understand. The women had stopped at the house to invite mother. She explained that we did not care for wild plums, but father said we feared the taste to taste the sacred seed lest we be constrained to dwell forever in the nether regions. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Slump said, Huh, you don't eat the pits, you spit them out. And father hunched his shoulders and laughed the noiseless laugh that bothered mother. <laughs> There's like always <laughs> yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. She's she's really good at um putting in this kid's point of view, like all this stuff that's going on that's like, what is the deal here? You know, like that whole kid perspective of just wondering why people are acting so weird. Right. Uh I agree, you know, kind of the master of that was James Joyce in a portrait of the artist. Mm, where... Yeah. You know, it starts out from the perspective of a little kid and the narrative sort of matures as he goes through. Um, but while you're talking about it, I think, you know, one thing I drew from this, she's awesome at capturing the point of view of the child. But if this is based on her own experience, it sounds like she had a pretty miserable childhood. Yeah, no kidding. So that might also have something to do with, you know, that bitterness or... right. Yeah, like her sister is every single story. Her sister is pinching her, or <laughs> yeah, just her cruel. older sister. <laughs> well, there was a lot of uh, abuse. 
So she ended up institutionalized, right? Eventually. Um, you know, I it's unclear to me. She had some medical condition, but um, the Rostad book says that you know around this time in the late thirties, early forties, she started experiencing uh, delusions and paranoia. Mm. And you know, she lived to be ninety-five, but right in nineteen fifty, she would have been like 70 years old mm. um so you have to wonder how much of it would have been uh just like the ignorance about mental illness at the time right yeah i mean who knows maybe she was bipolar or whatever and they didn't even have a diagnosis for it but it does make it seem like health was a, a big factor and right and her literary decline health and mental health um so, Carolyn's collection um, also does a lot of, um, she, she also writes a lot about young women um, in situations where they're sort of out of, you know, things are out of their control and they're trying, just trying to figure things out. And like I'm thinking particularly of the, um, the two stories we talked to her about, the um, the one where the young girl's taking a dance class and the other one where she's being molested by a family friend. and um, So that's Ballet at the Moose Lodge. Yeah. And then Bridge Night, a fairy tale. Right. Yeah, two really powerful stories. And um, one of the things I liked about her, all of her stories, was that, um, you know, there's no, like, neat tying up in a bow and at all they're they're all very uh realistic and true to life type endings messy yeah for sure so i wanted to talk uh specifically about the title um title story ballet at the moose lodge um i thought one of the things i really loved about this story was how you um you sort of have these shadowy (laughs) male figures throughout the story that are semi-threatening um but also i really loved the fact that um sophie provided such a incredible um sort of oasis for for all these girls, but particularly for the the narrator um, with her dance class. I mean, the way you described the dancing and how it made her feel and, and, you know, just how it gave her a chance to sort of escape from this, you know, fairly typical small town life that she was living was really beautiful, I thought. Um, So how did that story uh, evolve? Um, well, it was kind of loosely based on a actual dance teacher that I had, um, and you know, I thought I, re- I wanted to write about it for a long time, and I think um, I didn't really um, know quite how to write about it. Uh, I, I for a long time, you know, we kind of joke about it. But when the more I got to thinking about this woman, I knew she she was from Rotterdam, and I knew she used to talk about surviving the war and how the bombing start stopped yeah. and 
10 blocks from their house. And, you know, uh, and, and the more I thought about it, you know, I started looking it up and, you know, that, that was the hunger winter in, for the Dutch and the Germans tried to starve them out. Wow. And, uh, and it was, it was terrible. And, and then I realized that, you know, she really was telling us about that. I mean, she told us about, you know, being helped by really the po- the potato skin stuff was real. Yeah, um, oh, no. that that was I think that wasn't real, but but oh. she told us about. Um, so I guess I thought got to thinking about her, and then you know, but I, just how you know, she and her husband were both. Um, you know, he he worked in the university, but. Um, how weird it must have been for them to be in this, you know, little, you know, mountain community. And they were so cultured, Mm. but at the same time, they were so, um, I mean, they had terrible, uh, uh, terrible wounds from the war. And, uh, and we were so oblivious, you know, probably pretty cruel, kind of, you know, dumb about it. So, um, I guess I was really interested in that contrast, but also she gave us so much, you know, I mean, just in terms of um, raising the whole level of what she expected in terms of artistic expression and um, what good music was and what good dance was and what good, what, you know, what art really was. And in a way that I don't think we had ever, I, I certainly never, seen um until that point so um and you i think i see that a lot in kids because i work with kids through the missoula writing collaborative you know kids like love that they hunger for that um they want to learn things and they want high standards and they want they really want to know those things Mm. can you say more about that know what things they want to know what really good really good writing they want to know what really good writing is um they want to know what a really good sentence is Mm. Uh, they want to know um what a really good you know plie is or or rendezvous or or um when they learn that that's really something to worth striving for it's like it elevates their life you know i mean we we all do that right we we all live for something that's different than you know the latest tv show yeah and i i thought you described that so well in that story so especially when it comes to the uh, when they have the actual performances there's that one line that beautiful line where you say they they went in as girls and they came out as dancers and so what they're getting from this whole experience is so important to them. And then there's this deflation <laughs> after the performance is over and yeah, yeah everyone and, and especially Sophie, it sounds like. Um, so was she the, the actual dancer teacher that you had, was she fragile in that same way or? Oh yeah. That, oh really? Yeah. You know, and I think that the dance was what sustained her too, you know, right just as um you know the idea of working toward a performance and you know that the way that um you know that can get you know more and more 
you know, everyone becomes invested in it. And especially, you know, when you think about a small town at that time, it's there, there wasn't a lot going on, you know. So these were mm -hmm. big. This was a big deal, you know. Right. You're buying costumes and you're going from school to school, and uh, it was really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, so then when it's over and you're, you know, it's still the middle of winter and you know you're suddenly plunked back in your little dreary town. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the narrator's already dealing with, uh, you know, being abandoned by her dad and all that too. So, uh, could, would you mind reading a little bit from that story? Do you have your book handy? Oh uh, yeah. Okay. They were always there in the doorway during dance class. The men from the Moose Lodge, dressed in oil-stained jumpsuits or black work pants, held up with suspenders, silver lunch pails in their hands. They gathered to watch the girls practice plies, jetés, rond de jambe, watching the, as the girls hopped about like so many pink-legged crows until Miss Sophie moved to the record player to start class. Then they lumbered off down the hallway to the bar to escape sore fingers and aching joints in the dark camaraderie of beer and whiskey, Hank Williams and Conway Twitty. One night in late November, after the men had moved to the bar and the girls had warmed up, Miss Sophie sat on a folding chair and gathered the girls around her. They sat, their feet pulled up to their crotches, flapping their, wing, their legs like wings. Miss Sophie said they were going to be in the Spring Arts Festival and, to make it a success, everyone had to take two classes a week. Polly, the philosophy professor's daughter, had a solo highlighting her lovely arms and deep plies. Denise, whose father owned half the town, had a solo featuring potage and springy jetés, or jumps. Susan, who was the only one of Miss Sophie's protégés whose parents weren't on the town's social register, had a solo featuring a number of pirouettes. Her mother was a beautician with high, teased hair. Her father wore coveralls and pumped gas. The other parents greeted them heartily, as if to underscore their differences. Thank you. Yeah. So the thing I love about that is that, like I mentioned before, you've got these shady sort of these guys, creepy guys watching these little girls. Um, it's almost as if you're giving us a little peek at what's what's in store for them in their lives, and then oh. and then taking them into this class where they have a little bit of a an idea of what the possibilities are. I, that's what I really loved about this whole story. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things too that makes me remember is one of the things I was also interested in was also how, I mean, what the role of arts are in small towns. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there are several things. I think one is, you know, because you kind of think, why do you even do it really? Because, you know, it's mm -hmm. not like anybody's going to go on and be a bad a dancer, um, but uh, there is something so hopeful about it, and it, it's a way people, I think Alice Monroe writes about this a lot, how, the way people kind of collectively choose to suspend belief in mm -hmm. something to escape their workaday lives, um, but also I think it is kind of something people do um, as a way of marking where they are in the social register um, very much, you know, whether it's piano lessons or, um, you know, music. I mean, not, not necessarily because 
but but that's something too. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Well, it's it's those kind of events are like one of the few places where people from different social classes come together. Mm. Yeah, right. If you don't have, you know, if you don't go to church. Right. It's like when you're, and you have kids. I mean, I never really noticed this till I had a kid. And then I realized right. you know, when you, she's in dance class or baseball, it's like all the other parents are there, but they're right. doing nothing but, you know, evaluating each other in reference to, <laughs> Mm -hmm. right and the arts are different than sports too you know it's you know uh you're right you're you're totally right it is a different vibe it's the same kind of thing going on but it's it is a little i don't know there's the whole intellectual part of it too absolutely you know we're doing this special thing for our kids and we you know um you know, because we believe in it. And I think particularly for girls, you know, at that point in time, it was more to, you know, just to encourage their grace or, you know, their, I don't know, development. and um, So they don't drop dishes when they're serving dinner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I mean, isn't that why oh. they went to finishing school and stuff? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you were supposed to, I mean, the whole idea was that you learn to play the piano so you could, you know, entertain in the parlor. Right, and yeah. you learn to do ballet or dance so you could dance nicely. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was, they, they were the decorative arts, right? Hmm. I think, uh, you know, you've already hit on one really important point of comparison, which is that uh, a lot of the protagonists in, in the stories in both collections, well, in all of um, Greystone Coats, is a young girl. Mm. Is that true? Yeah. They're all, yeah, all of them. And then... It's basically a it, novel in stories. That's kind of what I thought, you know, it... it doesn't say novel on the cover but i think yeah. if anybody published black cherries today they would call it a novel yeah it's it's the all the same characters every story so yeah and when they and when they say her second novel was never published i think critics think of it as a novel also mm -hmm. right so that's a big difference between them as caroline's stories as you know collected stories and they don't all right they're not connect they're not connected right but but they do share the perspective or point of view of a of a young girl or adolescent who, like you said, is just trying to figure out how the world works, which mm. is not usually the best for you know young girls or adolescent women. Mm -hmm. But I think there's uh, I think one thing I guess that differentiates them in my mind is. Um, Caroline's stories are a little more relatable. Yeah. Like maybe Greystone Coast is just far enough now from us in history that it's hard, like going plumbing. Does anyone still do that? Right. <laughs> and what is wild, you know, what are wild plums? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the ranch aspects of life and growing up in rural Montana has changed so much from Greystone Coast 
Coates' time that it's maybe harder to relate to, whereas Caroline's stuff is all very contemporary and yeah, that's true. you know feels up up to date. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is a criticism of readers, not writers. Yeah. Well, and I I would say you know both of these women are really highly respected in the writing community, like they're writers, writers. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Caroline's been working with the writing collaborative i think it's yeah the missoula for in years missoula. And, yeah you know is not only a great writer but a great teacher so yeah she, plus she went to stanford for the stegner fellowship which is really hard so to get into she, right so she's our second stegner fellow on breakfast in montana right and who's who's sean hill oh sure yeah right absolutely So, um, I don't know how much of a indication this is of um, a contemporary view of writers, or whether it's just sort of a um, an ongoing issue with Montana writers or writers in general in the West. But um, I think it's kind of too bad that need, that these two are not more well known. Um, because they really are like top notch. They're right up there with anyone else in the, in the state, as far as I'm concerned. As far as especially for short stories, which to me are so hard to do well. And you know, every single one of Carolyn's stories is is top. They're just really good. You know, they're yeah, very nicely polished and yeah, well crafted. Um, you know, I think her winning this recent literary prize is important yeah, and i also deal. think it's important that graystone coats black cherries is now in i think it's in a bison books edition isn't it yeah right it is yeah um along with all of mildred walker stuff so mm. you know the once once i guess as long as the book doesn't go out of print you know there's right. something to be said for it being an enduring artifact that's true that's true it's just interesting, you know, we, there's, I guess a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that, um, there's just so many good writers in Montana that, um, <laughs> it's hard to kind of shoulder your way into the public's attention, you know? Yeah, that's true, but it's interesting, um, and this would be something to look in the Rostad book to find out. You know, was Grace Stone Coates really a Montana writer in the 1930s? Or was she, you know, just a writer? Like, mm, yeah. No but, one thinks of F. Scott Fitzgerald as a Minnesota writer. You know, that's a great point because uh, the Montana mystique hadn't really started yet. So, uh, right. And who would her contemporaries have been in the 30s right. in Montana? Um, and she traveled in, you know, bigger literary circles. Uh, right. So right. you know she might have been a more obscure version of of all those '30s writers, but I don't think uh, you know it's not like a local Montana writer or somebody mm-hmm. who's known as a Montana writer. That's just my sense. It could be. Yeah. Wrong. No, that's that's a good point. Yeah. But then that gets back to our original question that sort of sponsored this whole breakfast in montana series is what makes a writer a montana writer or what is montana writing right exactly 
And, you know, at the very least, we can say there's probably not a lot of writers writing about Martinsdale, Montana. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's also interesting to think about how many of the... Um, the Montana writers that had an, a national reputation in the early, like the early, the first half of the 20th century were women, like Mary McLean and Dorothy Johnson and... Right. Yeah, and exactly. And now Grace and Mildred Walker even. So that's pretty fascinating. No, that's a great point. And, you know, I don't know what A.B. Guthrie's reputation is lately. Mm-hmm. But... If you think about a hundred years from now, what books are they going to be teaching at U of M and MSU? And my guess is Thomas Savage is going to be mm. overshadowing A.B. Guthrie and maybe Greystone Coates and Mildred Walker will be um, overshadowing all of them. That would be really interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, 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 I kind of tend to agree with you as far as Savage goes, too, and as far as being better than Guthrie but yeah who was who was better known in their day there's no right no, yeah no that's, contest that's part of the thing too you know once um once they make a movie of your book yeah then right. it's you know then everything changes dramatically like Jim Harrison you know until Legends right. of the Fall he was a favorite among literary people but yeah um a, after the movie then and it was everybody you know knew who he was mm -hmm. which again is interesting because dorothy johnson and the man who shot liberty valance and yeah some of the other stuff she wrote yeah. it's interesting they never made a movie of winter wheat yeah no kidding i was just talking to somebody about that and they said man i can't believe i missed this this awesome novel it yeah. really is it's good it's good stuff like Heartland, remember that movie? Yeah, or? yeah, that was great, great movie. And that was based on a a memoir of a woman from, I think it was in Wyoming, wasn't it, or or was it Montana? You know, I know there's a Montana connection. I think it did take place in Wyoming, but um, wasn't it? Um, Annick Smith and Kittredge uh, produced it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't remember the details. I just remember that was a pretty awesome movie. Yeah, it was. So, let's uh let's just say we we love these books, huh? Uh yeah, the, I think these are on the must-read list for any Montanan. Yeah, absolutely. Really good books. Uh Black Cherries by Grace Stone Coates published in the 30s, like 31 or 2, something like that. And Ballet at the Moose Lodge, which came out in... Ballet at the Moose Lodge came out in 2017. Published by Drumlumen Institute. That's correct. And I just want to read the list of where some of these stories first appeared. Excellent. Uh, Southwest Review, Alaska Quarterly Review, Salamander... Um, the new Montana story an anthology. That's great. I'm in there with her. In that mm. one. Uh, Big Sky which Journal. One your, which one of your stories was in there? Uh, Side of the Road. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, join us again next time.